I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Clara Blumet, PhD, is an Oakland-based artist, cultural diplomat, and researcher. As head of the Open Austria Art and Tech Lab, she curates artworks that explore the interplay of human and artificial creativity. As a professional musician and singer and songwriter, Blumet was invited to tour Europe and the US. Apollo, the international art magazine, most recently selected her among the 40 under 40 most talented young people worldwide working in art and technology. Hello and welcome, Clara. What inspired and attracted you to the creative arts in the first place? I think in retrospect, this is always a very challenging um, question to answer um, because there's, it's, it's almost impossible to tell whether it's nature or nurture. It's probably always a combination of both. And if the, there was like a, a moment that triggered the creative process, I think um, it is a gradual development that kind of calls you to that profession. Also, um, there's clearly this, this bifurcation on the road, whether you want to professionalize your talents or not. Um, so that's another big question that everyone, every artist needs to face. But I think in my case, um, I was always drawn to music and that is certainly owed to the fact that I grew up in a very musical household. My dad is um, always listened to, to those fantastic bands from the 60s and 70s, Cream and Black Sabbath and Santana. So I was very lucky in that regard. But at the same time, I grew up in Vienna um, and so classical music was just omnipresent. Yeah. It was kind of the tapestry of the city, the tapestry of the country. And um, it was impossible to escape it for better or worse. So every kid had to learn an instrument at the age of five and I chose piano. And I think um, what helps kids to continue on a creative path is um, encouragement, obviously. And one shouldn't underestimate that kids are very um, lazy in the sense of they tend to flock towards the things where other people encourage them, right? So yeah. um, in my surroundings, people have always said, well, you sing so beautifully. And and have, I always had to kind of be in the church choir or sing some random person's wedding and stuff where I really didn't know how how I ended up doing that. So ultimately, clearly you get reinforced in, in the belief that you're good at something and then you tend to pursue those things, right? It's, it's quite simple. But um, that still really doesn't explain artistic vocation. I think that's still something different from um, being talented in something. And um, I do remember one particular moment um, that was profoundly revelatory for me and that was um I'm half Spanish and my mom and I well my, my actually my entire family and I used to go to El Museo del Prado in Madrid um where my mom's from um and I was always surrounded by by fine arts and, and architecture and we did lots of travel to just look um like discover all the churches in the world, so to speak. So I'm pretty firm on, yeah. <laughs> on, on that architecture problem, but it really, it does something to you. But going to a museum um, of, of that magnitude, such as, as the Museo del Prado, it had an impact on me because of two artists that I came across. And the one, the first one was Hieronymus Bosch and his devilish creatures um, from the afterlife. But I think the artists that really resonated with me on a profound level that I could only unravel decades later um, and put into this, its proper place was Francisco Goya. And it was just something about, about his demons, about the familiarity. I could really, um, like, 
his desire or rather curse to externalize yeah. his internal struggles. Yeah. Um, there was just something that really called to me and um, something where I felt that, that I had this urge to, um, and then probably the things that I was feeling or um, that were kind <clears> of <throat> bombarding onto me, but also um, struggling inside of me, I could see that this would manifest as some sort of a hor horrifying creature. And it was really that I was afraid of these creatures rather than I could really empathize with them, empathize with the artist, but also with the creatures he had created. Um, and it was such a, such a beauty in that. And I think, and I just, I couldn't shake it um, for, for many, many years. And it kind of, I pursued this path also like artistically, but clearly also um, in research. And he, he's like a, a very important subject in my research as a, um, in comparative literature and um, well, anyway, so I think that was one of the keystones that kind of brought me to the arts on a much more profound level. Growing up in Vienna, and you, you mentioned as well, spending a lot of time in, in, in Madrid, being surrounded in such cultural richness and, and uh, beauty and aesthetics and an appreciation for that, how much of that shaped you, and I guess you kind of made the point earlier, you don't really notice that until much, until you come out of it somewhat, until many years after and you look back and reflect and you're able to connect the, 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 the rationale as to kind of where you've kind of got to where you, you, you currently are. But how much of that impact influenced your, your, your way of thinking? I think it did a lot. Um, it, it influenced it a lot. I think my understanding of the art is clearly shaped through a, Eurocentric yeah. view towards the arts, for better or worse, also. <clears throat> so I grew up understanding that art has a lot of meaning, but shouldn't have purpose, right? So that was the mantra at the time that Europe was subscribing to, that it is really about la pula. And um, so following your inner calling and manifesting, um, externalizing what what you deal with, what you have assimilated, like this understanding of you being a vessel is one thing, but it's clearly also an understanding that the continent has has um, has tried to live up to after two devastating world wars that kind yeah. of shaped our understanding how art can be instrumentalized um, for nefarious purposes. And so growing up in this understanding that it's about aesthetics and the pureness of the arts um, was, I think, really important, especially much later in life when I moved to the U.S., where clearly the understanding of, of arts and culture is shaped through very different uh, political and historical movements. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was hugely important, and that is clearly also something that can be found in, in the way that I make art and I think that was <laughs> very later on it kind of also um that naturally came it produced a clash a clash between financial interests or the demands of the market and and personal interests or the, the purity of what I considered um my art should be or sound like um so it's it's not always clear that the demands of the market in terms of what how art has transformed into entertainment um, can still live up to this highest ideal of of um, art for art's sake. What is your creative process in terms of how do you make the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas, developing them into concepts, and then bring them to actualization? Inspiration is very personal and there's really no cookie cutter process that can be replicated or um, applied to other people. So in my case, I toyed around with different artistic mediums. I think many artists have, unless you have a very, very standout talent. Um, I, I come like the artists that I admire most, um, like John Cage, for example, these are, they're not really, polymaths because we don't live in an age of polymaths anymore it's just like the world has gotten too complex to know everything but um they're certainly extremely versatile in their artistic talent and their artistic in their artistic journey um and i think 
I, I did that too. Like I, for example, um, I studied fine arts um, because um, for a while I thought that this would be my primary artistic medium, painting. And again, I got a lot of reinforcement on that front also since I was a child. Um, and I used, used to pay really large scale figurative um, paintings, but like music just was too strong. And I think ultimately the medium that combined all of my interests was the song. Like not, not so much just music, but really this hybrid format of poetry and music. One that just is omnipresent in all cultures, has so many different cultural man manifestations. And it's really this almost to me a universal language, the song. And I also like the fact that it is, I mean, I do understand the ivory tower of, of high arts, but the approachability of a song is really something that draws me in from a very early stage. And so now that we've established that this is still <laughs> like the vessel, my medium that I, um, that I enjoy the most, I think um, it's hard to describe how a song comes about. I think mostly it's, the most common way is that it starts with an idea, a thought that I just can't shake. Um, and then all of a sudden this thought mostly turns into a metaphor. It's almost like a, like a, it, it has evolved. It has transformed inside of me and, and, and has finally manifested it as this one precise line or, or thought. Um, usually that might be the first line in the song or the chorus. Um, and, in how my biochemistry works or my creative process, whatever, um, whatever it is, um, it usually goes hand in hand with a melody. So it's just, these things are intertwined and I don't know how it happens, but immediately there's just this line that comes to mind and it goes, it is attached to music. Um, and from there on out, it's really just excavating. It's almost like a, like an archaeological process where you carve out the pieces around it and then like a mosaic appears and pieces and then you you start pulling it together and and exchanging parts and um and it's and it evolves 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 and and um and there it's still fair to say that so I don't think that a song is just this one um, perfect process from start to finish without interruption. There's a fair amount of work inside of, a, of those almost four minutes of art um, where you exchange parts and, and sh you shift around and even the melody can change and um, mostly, yeah, harmonic change and all of that. Not, nothing is static, nothing is carved in stone. And I think another really important aspect in all of this is to keep in mind that um, you have to be willing to just sacrifice, like sacrifice parts of the song that that are near and dear to you if they just don't work. Um, and it takes a lot of practice to come to realize if something works or something doesn't. Your ability to manifest, you know, like being able to manifest what's around you in everyday life, mm -hmm. and also what's what's in you, right? And being able to channel that into your creative pursuits. And like you say, the output of the manifestation is a song. The song is just such a powerful medium to, to me anyway it, it's the it's the highest of all arts when it's done properly and a song connects emotionally with people across every culture every walk of life regardless of whether or not they they can speak the same language they still get the same the similar feeling it's made r relatable and understandable by providing purpose and, and meaning to them so i think as an art form totally up there the other thing about a song as well it's amazing how when that song has been captured published and unleashed to the world that song then becomes like a capsule in time for everyone like they, they might have went been going through school they might have been in a relationship or they might have been at college or their first job or whatever it is and there might have been a song at that moment in time that encapsulated that experience and then 20, 30 years may pass. And then whenever they hear that song, it takes them right back to that moment where they get that sense of the feeling, this process. Absolutely great. It's such a powerful medium. When, when did you realize that you, you had that talent? Was that something that you were aware of at a very young age or was it more like more of a gradual thing? Awareness is a, is a complicated concept in this context because... 
like our brains don't fully evolve until we're 25. So everything yeah. before right. that stage is kind of <laughs> a cloud. Yeah, but no, I know what you're saying. Um, I think there was a moment um, very early on in life where I knew that there was this desire and it wasn't a des- an interestingly, um, gladly, thankfully, that was way before the social media age. So there was no external pressure of this um, wanting to be famous on some sort of platform that was like so outside of my scope of interest or even possibility. So this was really, I was glad that I could figure those things out way before it was tainted by, um, by other external forces. Right. That, yeah. Um, so I think very early on, I very, very in step with what I, the story that I t- told, um, told earlier about Francisco Goya, that um, I felt that this there was an urge to externalize what I was feeling inside. Yeah. But at the same time, very early on, um, I had this desire or this longing to tap into this, I want to call it a stream of consciousness that surrounds us. Um and to make sense of the chaos surrounding me yeah. um, by simplifying things in a way or making them concise or precise. I think in a way it's, um, I don't want to psychoanalyze myself too much, but it is trying to exert control over something chaotic and uncontrollable by definition, which is life that just essentially happens to us. And uh, we, we think we're in control, but mostly it's just an absolute illusion. Um, and I think I remember, I specifically remember moments that I even wrote in my diary and discovered years later where I had started to compose fragments of songs. And interestingly, obviously, and I think that happens to a lot of people that are not native speakers in English, um, like the, the music that we grew up with was not the music of our mother tongues, right? So um, I listened, if I listened to the Beatles or even a pop star that was modern at the time when I was a kid, um, I don't think I could always understand what they were singing about. Um, but I could, I feel like I could, I could feel what it was about, even though, for example, listening to Strawberry Fields, it is a very different song, even if you understand the lyrics. So sometimes <laughs> not even the lyrics help, help you get to the um, to the meaning of what a song is actually can um, like the secrets that it yeah like the secret ball. but but I do understand that that um, the medium has so many so many layers to it so there's melody and harmony and the intonation of the voice and the instruments and the soli and then of course and there's this other layer of text of poetry and even that is such a there are so many pitfalls pitfalls in when you think you have discovered something or understood something, the intention of the artist can be something completely different. And at the end of the day, what I would say, it doesn't really matter. It's really not about the artist. Like the artist intent is only one ingredient. It's really about how you as a recipient, yeah. how you transform this and make meaning out of it and how it speaks to you. And that I think is the most fascinating thing about art that the artist intent to me is, is not, that's not, the journey that the spectator or consumer should be should be on is really about how whatever impact it has on you. So the like the point A artist to point B, there's so much in that um, transient moment, this transition yeah. um, that yeah. that happens that we can't really explain, and and you you have to let it happen. And I think to circle to circle back to your initial question, I had that feeling very early on, even though the first fragments of my first songs were rudimentary mishmash of German, Spanish, English things um, that made absolutely no sense, an absolute invented language, but it always came with a very clear melody. So I think the urge to to do this via song um, and, and, and to sing it was always there. Um, I just, I couldn't figure, figure out, and that took me at least a decade or two, um, what language I'd prefer. And I mean, I, I sing in three different languages still to this day. And I um, I don't think I would have done this if my mother tongue were English, because it's just so much easier. You have this well of um, of a dominant culture that just, that just works. Um, but if you grew up in a German speaking country and, and 
um, have Spanish family, then of course you have. Like, yeah. Those were my two mother tongues. Um, but but yeah, I think that I had that very early on, although in retrospect, would I can't really pinpoint a moment where I thought, wow, I'm an artist. That is really something that society tells you later on, I feel. Yeah. What do you think? It's one thing creating it, but when you put that creation out there, it's pretty much owned by the rest of the world and they interpret it, how, what it means to them and their specific life. Do you think in a specific language or is it an amalgamation of the three languages that you speak in or does it just vary? It really varies and it also varies with the topic. It's so interesting. Um, so in my family, when we speak, we have a, we like over generations because it was, um, my family used to migrate. So my dad is Dutch Indonesian. So his mother tongue is, isn't German either. My mom's a German, Spanish, grew up with two languages. And I think my, for generations, my family has always talked in like a mishmash of, of languages, whatever, yeah. whatever word came in first in whichever language that was, that came out. That's right. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, yeah. so, and so that's kind of, um, how, how we grew up and as kids. And I think, um, that was handed down to me in my creative process. So there are aspects where just merge Spanish elements into English songs. And um, I have moments where I um, merge German words into them, but, but that is actually something pretty novel in my creative process. I think um, early on, I tried to keep it, like also in this, in this trying to understand what, where is my place in, in um, as a professional artist, like how do I, to how do I sell my art? It was always not like, it wasn't obvious to me at first, um, which language should be the one closest to my heart, closest to my identity. And that is an eternal question that I have been facing in interviews <laughs> for the past 15 years um, where people brainstorm or, or try to even try to tell me that, no, you're like, clearly when you speak in Spanish, that's like the most authentic and it always comes down to, to this ridiculous notion of authenticity, which I find almost insulting because, I mean, art comes from artifice and there's also some artificiality in it, yeah, right? Exactly. But that's on purpose because, um, and, and so authenticity is almost mistaken, often mistaken by this notion of you look authentic, right? And you were born in a certain um, town in, um, like in the prairie or, or in the Alps and that makes you very authentic singing in a certain dialect or something. To me, that is absolutely ridiculous. It has totally. nothing to do with the art, like the concept of art itself. And um, I mean, we've seen it. The greatest artists have experimented with mediums, languages, outfits, looks, identities, um, and even gender identities. And that is like, that is very authentic to me. All of it is very authentic when it's genuine art. Authenticity isn't about being a purist and limiting yourself to your roots. That's having a fixed mindset and limiting yourself to stand still. Being authentic means living in the moment with conviction and confidence and staying true to yourself. I find it a depressing prospect that if I'm the same person next year or in five years time than as what I am today, then that's counterproductive and I'm not progressing. My core values and philosophy may remain the same, but I still seek new experiences all the time. Not about resting in my laurels and repeating the same thing over and over. It's about following your heart and doing what you love by falling in love with your craft and pursuing it with intensity and being exceptional at it. And that exceptional part means con continuous innovation and always moving forward. I don't want to miss a fascinating point you made earlier about the language you think in when you create. And your response was that given your family was multilingual and from a diverse cultural heritage, the language was usually dictated by whoever would say the first word and that then ignited which language the conversation would start in. By contrast, and admittedly embarrassingly, being British, we did not have any real mandate to learn any other language other than English, which is limiting and makes you especially lazy in linguistics. 
I have always been in awe of our sisters and brothers from the continent, the western and northern regions in particular, who can speak at least two languages fluently. Although I've resided in four different countries, English was the mother tongue, and I am attracted to living in a country that forces me to learn a new language and culture. Thank you for pointing that out, because I think people in the English-speaking world don't often realize that um, how difficult it is for everyone growing up yeah. in, in, in other speaking countries to tap also like in this, that's just the dominant culture kind of um, creates the baseline of what the world um, around us understands as um, the status quo in art, right? Yeah. And so if the medium is English to transport your message, that's just essentially something that you have, it's a skill you have to learn. It's almost like if everyone has to play guitar in order to, to make pop music, then that's just a skill you have to learn. And if you think about it this way, it's really not that big a deal. But if you think a little bit further, um, language is just a highly complex machine. It's this vehicle that transports cultural knowledge. Um, like there's so much nuance in how you pronounce a word. Yeah. It's not trivial. And that transports meaning in and of itself. And so there's meaning in dialect, there's meaning in, in, in nuance, in, in choosing one word over another. Um, and I mean, there's so much cultural difference between Britain and the US and, and yeah. how you would um, even like a song song by those different cultures clearly yeah. is uh, differs a great deal. And so there's always circling back to the question of authenticity. So when a person growing up in, in a German speaking world or anywhere else um, that is not English as a mother tongue adapts that language, what does it convey? Like what, how can you still, how can you see merely as a, as a vessel, as a means of transportation yeah. your message, but at the same time, there's so many other layers that you need to take into account. So this is not a trivial thing and, and has been discussed a great deal in the German speaking world. And there's clearly also this movement that arose in the early, um, in, in the early 2000s, which, which is like this back to the roots movement of, yeah. um, you cannot be authentic singing in English. You have to sing in your mother tongue. And then so um, most interesting artists in my countries have flocked back to singing in German, which kind of makes them, you know, it makes makes it interesting and appealing to the people in that country because music creates identity or like art creates identity and it has really had a huge impact of this like self-identification moment um, of a new generation. But beyond that, it also kind of it it um it kind of cuts your wings a little bit, right? Because yeah. you won't fly as far as you could have just because language transports a message and it, it yeah and I don't know so for example um, I'm gonna get, give you <laughs> an example that I love which are the scorpions right so the scorpions <laughs> are a highly impactful German rock band <laughs> and some people even say they single-handedly brought down <laughs> the USSR um, so it's <laughs> there's a really really funny podcast about that um, about winds of change uh, but but it's it's interesting, right? Because they're when you hear them speak, Klaus, his like his English is so it's it's so German. There's like such a huge thick German accent around it. Um, it's very charming, and it really absolutely doesn't matter in their medium of choice. Yeah. As a rock band, it's it's completely superfluous. It has no meaning whatsoever. Yeah. And I think there's also like a hierarchy there in when language is it has to be i want to say pure and when it is um which is ridiculous but yeah. still um and and when people accept it so there's also certain countries where there's more um uh, where people are giving more leeway or just more room more wiggle room like for example Björg and her her beautiful icelandic accent right so that's something that we cherish but um, maybe German is just something that people don't dig as much. Depending on the context, there is linguistic hierarchy that absolutely kicks in, especially in Germany and definitely in the, U the UK. And it's those idiosyncrasies that you probably would never really get if you're an outsider until you live there. And then when you start to live there, you see how linguistics, pronunciation, accents, dialects 
play a role. The more northern you are in the UK, the more it's seen as being less socially sophisticated and further down the hierarchy, which which is just insane, ridiculous. But that all comes from the class system um, historically. Yeah, absolutely. What are the key skills needed to survive Mm -hmm. and thrive as an artist? Um, I think the most important skill is the one that is often um, emphasized the least, which is patience. Hmm. Yeah, another way to phrase this would be endurance. Um, I don't know how often I've been, I came across this, this sentence or this mantra. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, So it's mostly about patience with yourself, um, but it's also patience with the world that might not always align with your ideas and your ideals and your visions. Um, So how do you, I think the most challenging task is how do you believe in yourself when no one else does? Um, And I think that is, that is a burden of an artist where there's really no comparison out there in the free market. So if you compare an artist to an entrepreneur um, that could also suggest, well, no one believed in my product. Yeah. The difference is still you're selling a product and art is inherently in a way just yeah. being, being yourself, right. Is indistinguishable yeah. from the source, indistinguishable from the artist who produces it. So yeah, it's intertwined with yourself. You made a key distinction there between artists and entrepreneur, the, the output of the artist is regardless of whether or not it's commercially feasible, it makes no difference. It's just an expression of, of you. Whereas the entrepreneur success is equated with the acquisition, the value, the, the, the financial feasibility of the outcomes. Whereas their skill sets, psyche may be very similar, but the outcome is very different in terms of um, how it's perceived and measured. Absolutely. So apologies for the enthusiastic sidetracking there. Back to the key skills. I think patience is the one that I have, um, undervalued the most. <laughs> and there, I think the second, in my personal career, I mean, um, but it is hugely valuable and the older I get, the more I cherish it. Um, and, the, and the second is, is discipline. Um, I think people often underestimate how strenuous, how exhausting the artistic process is and that it is a very, very skillful process. Um, so I, I came across the story the other day that I don't know who, who said it. I think it was in, in, in a podcast that I find extremely valuable. And the question was on what to tell your kids. Should you tell your kids that they're talented? And I think it was very, I, I'm blanking on his name now, but he essentially said, Um, I don't tell my kids that they're talented because it makes them lazy. So the moment you tell someone that they have talent, they don't move outside of that comfort zone of that talent. So you should tell your kid, like enforce them or reinforce them in, in positive traits you think um, are valuable in, in their lives. And so I think when people think about artists, they just think they have this, God or goddess given talent um, that they just have. And it's just this well and the source they dive into and that's it. Um, And it just magically comes out. And some of those, some of the art that we consume might appear that way. It might sound, I dare say, even basic. Like there's, there's impulses that all of us have had in the past of like, I could do that. Right. It's so it's so simple. It's I yeah. could I could do that, and yet it is extremely impactful. And I think um, that's the beauty of of art. It um, it, can, it cannot be measured by the skillfulness. I don't think that's a that's the right way to measure art because it goes so so much deeper, and it's so yeah. much more profound. Yeah. Just having mastered an instrument, or having perfected something, or being the absolute best cello player in the world. It goes beyond that. We, we have proof of that because there's just very, very simple songs or very, um, I want to say, technically unskilled art pieces that are that have really transformed how we envision art. But the discipline really consists of pursuing a path, even though you know you have talent and it might suffice 
just with what you have and still push yourself further and still go further. And by that, I don't think it has to be as crass as, um, you know, hurting yourself, playing the piano for 10 hours a day, but rather pushing yourself to be open to new ways of inspiration, pushing yourself out of the comfort zone by discovering new, I don't know, it, it doesn't really have it even have to be a new instrument or a new medium or a new tool, but rather new books, new, um, reach out to new people, dive into new, um, new ecosystems, stuff like that, but just really be mobile and open in your, in, in your, in your brain and just letting all those sources of inspiration come to you. And then the discipline is to work with those. Um, yeah. and I think that makes for, for a great artist. It actually circles back. It goes full circle with what we said, being adaptable, being open, being more than one thing, um, not expecting to be the same thing in five years. How many times have we had cynics proclaim when they look at art and they come out with statements like, yeah, I could have done that. Yeah, but you didn't. And we all have come across something so banal and bereft of sophistication that there is no doubt that we could have done it just as well or better. But as the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty, and the key to creativity is perceiving and understanding the context of something new, perhaps an invention, and how it will be used in the future. Most people tend to judge something in the present by its complexity, production value, and acceptability, when its actual value may lie in the future. Every successful creator needs to innovate continuously or risk being surpassed and the future leaving them behind. What are your lessons learned in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success that you can share with existing but also aspiring artists? The first lesson for me is really a very contemporary one on, on social media. I think art, and, and we already talked about this just um, prior to this podcast, I think um, social media has really transformed how we produce art, how we consume art, and what art is being valued in society, which I, in a way, find highly problematic, um, even out, out of my own experience. So the way that I, for example, have created my first solo record, it was clearly shaped as a concept album, and it was like a journey that you should take from one song to another, and it would carry you through. And then clearly um, that has changed because uh, the way we consume music right when I got it, brought it out was, was more around producing singles. So every song had to be a single and you just essentially, and that was also due to technology, right? So iTunes created the system of um, paying 99 cent for a song and and so people just purchase songs and not records anymore. So that really transformed how we how we envision a record or how an artist would do that. And that yeah. kind of got rid of the B-sides, which to me are the most beautiful songs. Yeah. Do, right? <laughs> so you get hooked by the single, but then you stay with the B-side. Exactly. Um, and, um, and it kind of, we got rid of those. And that really, that is a huge loss. Um, it's a huge loss of artistic production. It's a huge loss for humanity, dare so I say, because a single has a very different purpose. Um, and then, for example, I remember that 2015, and now working in Silicon Valley, clearly I have data that confirms that Facebook has changed their algorithms as, as to what to prioritize on their platforms. And so I remember that bringing out a record exactly around that time was hugely um, destructive for my career because it just, it wasn't like the message of that art wasn't amplified enough because either it wasn't polemic enough or there wasn't enough nudity in it or anything provocative around it that would just like scream to the algorithm and, and amplify it. And I think, um, so to me personally, I, I didn't really understand the process behind it and why that happened, but I just like, I, I, I felt it a great deal. And now we live in this reality where this is just second nature. We know exactly what to feed the algorithm. We know exactly what is needed in order to get noticed on social media. But that's not always what we need. I don't know if I make myself clear, but it's not always what the human needs 
in that particular moment. Maybe we don't need outrage. Maybe we don't need outcry. Maybe we don't need polemics. Maybe we're thirsty for something very different that just doesn't break through. And um, I think it benefits a certain type of artist um, and it really harms another type of artist that I think is hugely valuable and important to our society, maybe even for the purpose of healing, um, given the current situation that we're in, but just seeing how polarized we've become in every single society around the globe, yeah. um, there is some clear correlation there. And so um, as a pitfall, I would say that is a lesson learned and how to factor that in staying true to yourself, not getting distracted with likes and dislikes and, yeah. um, and, anom and anonymous voices that are always more hateful than the ones that are loving and caring. How do you create like a second skin as an artist and armor around that? I honestly don't know. Um, um, I don't envy the new generation of artists that is coming and has to endure this. And then how to keep resilient against it and to, um, so that you're not influenced by it because we're just human. So we tend to flock towards what works, right? Um, and to not get manipulated into creating art that might just indulge what is trendy or what works or what gets likes, yeah. but rather doing something that has genuine meaning. Um, that is that is a very, very private and intimate journey. And um, I think true artists have the capacity to, to weather it. As a young artist, you have a tendency to jump the gun on, an, on deals uh, because you're desperate and you're impatient and you, you want to start. And so um, a lesson learned from my personal experience is don't just sign stuff because you want to you wanna move on or you want to go to the next level. Be really conscious about what feels right and what doesn't quite feel right and understand that there's people out there who want to benefit from your talent and that's their entire raison d'être to just benefit and exploit your talent for better words, right? But this is really just a negotiation. And to, um, I think artists have a tendency to be extremely trusting and to have like lack negotiating skills or lack the capacity to see this as a business when it, when there's always a point when you professionalize your craft well, you need to see this as a business. And you need to understand that the forces working with you see it as a business too. Um, and so whatever, so there is this moment where you just, you have to be really conscious about whom to um, go in business with. Um, and I think there are forces at play for young artists where you just are not level-headed enough and you don't have guidance enough. So in every other trade, you have like institutions that would yes. shield you or advisors. And this is, this is just not true for artists. They just, it's the wild west. Yeah. <laughs> and some people get lucky and they pair up with the right manager who really just has their best interest at heart, but most don't. And this is the sad truth that is never to told because their stories are not told, but most people don't end up. And even if you look at the great artists, I mean, <laughs> look at the, artist formerly known as Prince, right? So, or Mariah Carey, like they're very publicized stories of people trying to emancipate from um, either record labels or managers or- Totally, yeah. Right? Um, or I mean, even Jimi Hendrix apparently never saw a dime in his entire artistic career. So there's just very, very tragic stories, highly publicized. So there's so many pitfalls early on in your life. So when you sign a deal, you have to, don't be cheap, get a lawyer, even though it, it, you don't have the money right now. You plan to get it from somewhere else, get someone who really knows the trade. Yeah, so there's a lot that could derail your career very early on. As a female artist, there's another point of advice that I really wanted to share, which is, I think, um, I mean, I'm 37 and clearly, I'm so glad to see that there's a different generation out there. Also grew up in a cultural context, um, in a very patriarchal society. So Austria is extremely, extremely patriarchal in many, many ways. And 
um, the music industry more so in media and it's all um, men. There's really no woman. <laughs> and it's very, very hard to break through and to break through just being seen um, as an artist rather than a, a pop star, for example. And there's, yeah. Yeah. there's two, two ways like men that do the thing that I do are always valued as a voice of their generation as an artist. And women are essentially seen as, as um, models or right. And casted for very different jobs and interviewed by very different media. Um, and that's clearly how we are buy it. Just this, Two, two, two tier system. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, um, and it's in, in Austria. It's still, still that wave, and it's, it's kind of breaking through. But the most successful artists are still men because they're still being reviewed very differently than all the incredible women that are doing music. So, two things that I want to share with my female peers is: first of all, you can do this alone. Um, don't just immediately out of insecurity or because your upbringing has brought has brought you to conclude that you're not technically skilled enough or not versatile enough or that you can be the pretty face to a project. Don't underestimate your talent. You can be more than that. You can even be your own producer. Um, nowadays, it's so incredibly easy to find all the tools you need um, and to learn them. Um, don't be afraid. Of, don't shy away from that uh, challenge. Teach yourself all the things you need to be self-sufficient. And that may be true for like, the artistic sphere and also technical skills um, that, that come with production and like really professionalized production setting, um, but also marketing and like the baseline of what you need to defend yourself in the industry. Um, don't search or don't depend on this Deus ex machina kind of male figure that comes to your rescue. Don't be a damsel in distress. Um, and that leads me to my second point, which is, the most challenging part of it all is to straight, stay true to your unique artistic vision. So often as an artist, and that's true for male, uh, female and non-binary artists, for any artist really, um, when you listen to music that just blows your mind and you're like, oh my God, I've never heard something like that. And every fiber in your body just wants to do just that and sound exactly like that and write like that artist, um, a piece of advice is don't, don't try to copy everything you hear just because you're amazed by something. So I know that inspiration is an essential part of your own um, creative process. And ultimately everything in art has always been recycling <laughs> and you just assemble and reassemble parts that are already out there in this ether. But Try to resist the urge to emulate the creation that has already been out there. Um, it'll never do you any good. It'll you always be several steps behind. And also that person that has created this is a unique being with a unique set of circumstances and abilities that just aren't you. So whatever you try to emulate just won't sound the same. And being like understanding this, like really understanding this is I think one of the hardest parts of being an artist, to find your voice, find your vessel, find your message and your unique artistic expression entry, stay true to it. Authentic creative expression is the ability to make the invisible visible by taking what is not to create what is, by manifesting what is inside you and around you, by transcending the obvious, ordinary and routine, by connecting the past to the present, by putting things together in new ways. It means believing in yourself and your ideas and always moving forward and never giving up. History helps us understand the world, cultures, events and change by providing invaluable stories, lessons and philosophies from which we learn. The past has made us who we are today. Understanding history builds better connections and broadens our capacity by allowing us to stand on the shoulders of giants. We learn from them and build on their innovations. History educates us on how society, technology and government worked in the past to better understand how we got to present day and how it works now. It also arms us with the insights to create a better way forward. Understanding history is essential to architects, artists, designers, filmmakers, musicians, writers, and other creators. 
instead of needlessly reinventing the wheel, historical knowledge provides insight for authentic creativity and it accelerates real innovation. Creation is not imitation. Many influential artists, designers, musicians, filmmakers, writers, poets, started as imitators of their craft's current greats. Then once they had learned and honed their craft, they found their voice combined by being completely fearless to innovate and grace the world with their art. I see a new generation arising that is facing different challenges, of course, and it's less pronounced, sexism, but it's also culturally very different the way that I encounter how these things are being treated in the US versus a society that still might need 20 years to get to the point like Austria. But um, one step at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And I really, like what I, what I love, like the, the quote, the Isaac Newton quote of, um, if I see further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. I recently quoted it on a, in, in a women's empowerment gala in Vienna, where I gave a speech on that. And I think it's beautiful um, and so true in all the fields. And cle- clearly for Isaac Newton, that was scientific accomplishments, right? To yeah. be humble enough to acknowledge that, I didn't just discover the atom. <laughs> There's just a whole bunch of, <laughs> well, it, of, of it, knowledge out there. Well, it, 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 exactly. I mean, like you made the point around, you know, everything is a is a reinvention or, or an interpretation. And, you know, you and I exist because our parents brought us into the world. So there's parts of us that are, 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 are attached to that. There's parts of us that are attached to their parents and blah, blah, blah. And everything that we kind of do with our eyes, ears, and and smell, it's it's we're picking up on inspiration from every day, and that could be positive or it could be negative, and it could be influences that we want to diametrically oppose. And so, with the the, the work that we end up doing, could be the polar opposite of kind of what was our normality. But it's it's all relative. And so, for people who come out and say I'm totally original, I totally did it without, that's just ridiculous because it's, absolutely, you know, it's <laughs> and if you're lucky enough to be able to create your unique sound that's very distinct. You mentioned the Beatles earlier, so let's use them as a, as a prime example. They started off imitating American gospel, R&B, rockabilly, and early rock and roll, and their music dealt with love songs and teen relationships, which was the standard fare of the day. Then, once they started to master their technical expertise as musicians and songwriting experts, similarly to artists like Banksy, Dali, Matisse, Michelangelo, Picasso and Andy Warhol, they all started off as imitators of the masters of that time so that they could learn and develop their craft until they found their own style. And obviously there was the, the burning ambition within themselves to to innovate and, and grace the world with their own unique style and leave their mark on, on the world of art. Anyway, about halfway through the, the Beatles' duration, they found their authentic voice and style and produced lyrics and music about everyday life and observations in their native Liverpudlian accents. Ultimately, they became artists and who revolutionised how music was made and acted as a catalyst and soundtrack for social justice movements. Albums such as Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band provided one of the most potent musical cornerstones to the now legendary Summer of Love. And the Beatles have maintained a canonized status, unprecedented for musicians to, to date, in terms of their mythology, their legacy, and, and commercial, global commercial success. But the point within, within this as well is expertise is not enough to change the world in any field and discipline. Innovation and artistry require the ability to transcend time and create a culture and movement manifested through your own unique identity, aesthetics, and the world around you. And, and if I might um, add on that, because that's, that's really also something um, that holds true in my life. Um, when, I, when I studied fine arts, um, I went to this very traditionalist, very old school, in a quite literal sense, Academy of Fine Arts, Academia de Bellas Artes in Madrid, like a like a, a monolith in, yeah. in the arts sphere. Um, and what I essentially did is just copy all old art um, artworks and um, just 
yeah, copy statues and paint yeah. portraits and really just hone my craft. Like I spent so many thousands of hours just um, <laughs> just going like one inch for yeah. inch to just perfect how to paint a hand or an eye. But ultimately that really propelled me to, while mastering that craft made it yeah. so much easier for me to understand how a light breaks and perspective works. And, and then I could really draw on that knowledge to create art that was much more my that was my own but but having this baseline of technique and so I think maybe that answers that is another answer to one of your early questions that um that technique is important right because technique gives you freedom it gives you artistic freedom and it's so beautiful to have that that, that like toolbox to dive into so I mean I learned to play the piano for 12 years and I really like I'm not a proficient concert pianist and I can just go out there in the world and, and play Rachmaninoff in front of thousands of people for sure not, but I did play Rachmaninoff and I could play pretty well. And so I know that when I compose a song, I have this, this muscle memory that just guides me to different places on a piano. And the same goes out for the voice. Like I also trained this instrument for many, many years and, and that just gives me range in the metaphorical and figurative sense that I could just try out different things that I couldn't if my toolbox was limited. Right. And so that's another thing that clearly Picasso just had, or all the artists before him just had to do that for, for many, many decades, just replicate and replicate and replicate because that's also what their customer base wanted, like mostly the church, um, as this one sponsor. <laughs> um, and just, just really replicate, but that gave them the moment to just, it triggered them um, yeah. to dive into something else and just breach barriers that no one has gone, um, gone before. And um, so I think technique is something valuable, even though I sometimes come across an artist who is not very, in, is not very skillful and still incredibly artistic. So even there, there's a distinction that is valuable and, um, so I don't really like the snobbery around. No, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's very misplaced. You're, you're absolutely spot on for sure. So, by, by the way, that was a great discussion and fantastic uh, points of view. There's just one final question I'd like to ask, if that's okay with you, Clara. Of course, please. Thank you. What's your vision for the future of music, art and culture and the role of creativity? Well, I think this is a very timely question, Roy, and I'm very glad um, you're posing it in this context of this very artistic interview, because I usually responded in my day job, which is um, I, I lead an organization called the Open Austria Art and Tech Lab. So it's part of the Austrian Consulate in San Francisco, and this little lab focuses on the intersection of human and artificial creativity. So it's really trying to explore how to expand our human creativity by engaging with an AI. So systems that have been, that have become so proficient that we have um, coined, coined them as creative, right? Yeah. We have said that these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms are actually creative. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm still a little on the weather. Um, and so, I found it hugely, fasc hugely fascinating because with all those projects that I curate, I really, I try to investigate the boundary of how far we as humans can, um, can stretch the limitations of our creativity, what we thought was the boundary to being creative and how we can explore um, to go even further. How can maybe a machine inspire us to new highs and lows in the creative process like that this bandwidth is being stretched yeah. and i think um all of this experimentation really has has laid bare the fact that first of all um creativity is not under threat so artists are not on the threat it's not like you're being pushed out by a machine that will be able to create a much more sophisticated art piece even if that were true um I've come to realize that artists, was, artists are always one step ahead. <laughs> so um, artists will always be one step ahead. They're really going to be the phalanx, the forefront, the avant-garde of humanity. And 
um, if we think where we want to go as humankind, I, I tended to be a cultural pessimist by upbringing, but also by experience. So my, my understanding of humanity was always like tainted by this dystopian notions of we're actually really um, headed towards a Blade Runner-like dystopian yeah. future. Um, or like I'm a huge science fiction aficionado, but in my heart, I still, I kind of believe that there might be a utopian outcome for us in the end. So maybe if we look at, at advances in automation and machine learning, maybe there's a way we could get rid of um, jobs that are maybe demeaning for humankind yeah. are, um, and just replace them with things that, that give meaning and purpose to people. Um, and I know that unfortunately humans are still the cheapest um, workforce and that's why there's just a lot of tasks that are still being done by humans, even though they don't give people purpose or meaning. They're just, um, they give them bread on their table. And I hope for a future where we could evolve into a society that just uses that incredible machine that is the human brain and not just of this couple of people in Silicon Valley, but around the globe and free up this resource for people to just explore how limitless their potential is. And I wish we could evolve into the society where technology kind of creates a new form of freedom. Um, right now, I'm a little distraught by the reality that technology has kind of created a new sort of enslavement and I'm very worried about certain tendencies, but that's for a different podcast. But um, as for the future of where we could go with this is I think if we use this wisely and we create the right um, the right frameworks, also the right regulatory frameworks, then we might just go into a new renaissance and might just encounter a new flourishing age for humanity that is really all about discovering our limitless potential as a human. And the key ingredient here, the key ingredient here will be creativity. I'm fairly certain that creativity is key. So any recommendations for the future of humankind will be trying to nurture our kids into being, um, exploring their creative selves. And that doesn't necessarily mean that every person is an artist. I'm absolutely sure that not every human being is an artist. Um, and that's good. <laughs> But um, I do believe that every person can be creative and there is a valuable distinction in, in um, between those two concepts. So um, really understanding that, that creativity is, is uh, um, like a birthright of every human being and that we should try to um, foster it as best as possible because that will make for more resilient humans and um, yeah. much more adaptable humans. And, and that's the spontaneity and the adaptability that we want. Um, so that to me is an outlook um, that I welcome. And I hope that we'll, um, as, that politicians and policymakers will do their best to implement um, initiatives, educational initiatives that grant um, kids this possibility to venture out and discover that. It, it really has to be a utopian future for all the reasons that you kind of said there and and the, the way that you articulated if technology means taking away the mundane roles of humans that frees them up to be able to do jobs that are more fulfilling, that taps more into their creative creative potential, that's a great thing. And also as well, I think looking at ways where we can use technology is a way of not necessarily to replace humans, but to do things that humans can't do. For example, when Ford first invented, the, well, he didn't originally invent the car, but he made it mass market. But he was doing something there that humans couldn't do to help them improve how they got around, right? Similarly with the, the Wright brothers, when they created the aircraft, it was invented, using technology in a way that invented solutions that humans can't do, right? But they benefited from it and it pushed society forward. So, and similar elk of that, it would be nice to start seeing companies like, um, we all know who they are, but more of them that start to use technology in ways that um, 
do similar things, right? That it's all societal progress related and it's about improving people's, people's lives. Because our duty in the human race is to hand back the baton, leaving the world better than what it was when we entered it. And therefore, our outputs are the next generation's inputs. So we need to make it count. The future belongs to those who can see it coming. But how soon is the future? One thing's for sure, the future is unwritten and everything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening. Woo!